As you can hear, I'm under the weather, so I apologize uh, beforehand. This might not go well, but I'm hoping it does, and that God uh, gives my voice the strength and that I don't cough too many times. I'm wearing the lapel just so I can kind of cover it up if I have to cough. Hopefully, I don't blare you out of here, but uh, we'll get through. Well, worship is not exclusive to Christians or religious people. Everyone worships. Everyone worships. Some people worship the true God, and everyone else worships idols. Idols that don't have to necessarily be stone statues, um, but can be cars or sports or children that we delight in most or prioritize above everything else. Mark Driscoll, a pastor from Seattle, put it like this, quote, Idolatry is living for the glory of creation. This can be anything that is made. Something created is essentially deified. It is glorified. It is put in the preeminent penultimate position. It becomes the source of our identity and our joy, the object of our affection. It is literally the object of our worship. And here is the tricky part. Most of the time, we do not worship things that are bad. We worship things that are good. What happens is we take good things... We make them into God things, and in so doing, they become bad things. End of quote. I think Mark is right on. We fail to worship rightly when we elevate created things to God's status, when even good things become preeminent in our lives. For the Samaritan woman, men, and the false worship of Samaria had become her idolatry. And Jesus stepped into her life and graciously, although very directly, addressed the hidden idolatry of her life in order to make her a true worshiper of God. Jesus does this. Jesus graciously pursues us into the hidden dark places of our lives. Jesus graciously pursues us into these very dark places and hidden places of our lives. In verse 15, the woman said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She was not asking for living water. She was asking for regular water. She's still referencing here in Sychar where the Jacob's well was. Nevertheless, Jesus continues to lead her to living water, the living water that she so desperately needed. He said, go, call your husband, and come here. Now, it appears like Jesus is changing the subject on her. But he was exposing her sin and shining the gospel into her dark life. He was leading her to the rivers of living water by uncovering her deep thirst for that water. In their song titled, Demons... The band Imagine Dragons sings these lyrics. Don't get too close. It's dark inside. It's where my demons hide. It's where my demons hide. Well, Jesus is getting close. He's getting really close to this woman. He's hitting on some significant sin and pain in her life. And it is a really, really dark place inside. Verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. Her answer is short. 
And I think she's uncomfortable at this point. She was using truth to hide something important that Jesus already supernaturally knew about her. What Jesus says next is incredible for multiple reasons. Verse 18, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, that's incredible because Jesus possessed divine information about this woman's life. He knew her. He knew her life. Jesus knows all things. And so this is uh, attributing to or pointing to his deity and his expansive knowledge. Remember John 2.25, this would have been months and months ago that we looked at this, that Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It was also incredible because she had five husbands. Five husbands. Did they die? Uh, did she get divorced that many times? Whatever it was, this woman is carrying some baggage. She's had a tough go of it. Um, We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what happened in her life. And something else was going on in her life that Jesus knew about. She had been living in an adulterous relationship with a man who was not her husband. She was living in the sin of cohabitation or sexual immorality. And cohabitation is not marriage. Cohabitation has become somewhat normal in our culture, but Jesus rejects it. Because cohabitation is vastly different than sacred marriage and lacks the covenant bond and blessing of God. Years ago, I wrote an article entitled, Why Premarital Sex Can Kill Your Joy which was a response to the thought that the Bible actually never addresses the topic uh, of premarital sex or against, you know, never has the position of against premarital sex. Well, I, I left some copies on the back. If you want to read it, they're back there for you after the service. But the Bible is absolutely clear on these issues. You've got to dig a little bit and mine the truth for the gold that is there. But the Bible is clear on these issues. Even more, secular statistics reflect biblical truth. And I love when that happens. Because you're like, we told you so. This is what the Bible teaches. Of course statistics are going to back it up. Statistically, cohabitation prior to marriage significantly increases the likelihood of divorce decreases marital satisfaction, health, and prosperity, and often leads to less satisfying sex compared with married couples. The consequences of sin are devastating. They're real. They're palpable. People experience these effects of sin. This woman had five husbands, and she was living in a sexually immoral relationship with another man. Something was not working for her. She was broken. Her life was not going well. And she carried the weight of her sin. And yet Jesus was revealing truth and grace and freedom for her. She was getting saved. She was being transformed into a true worshiper. You know, God knows our dark places. He knows them. He can help you deal 
with yours. Jesus is not being rude to this woman by by bringing her sin out into the open in a discussion with her. He's not being rude. He's revealing how she is in desperate need of the fountain of living water. And he's also answering that need in himself. He is the source of her life and her worship. Jesus graciously pursues us into our bad theology and corrects our minds. Jesus graciously pursues us into our bad theology and corrects our minds. At this point, what could this woman say? All right, verse 19. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, which is just a great thing to say. He knew way too much about her, and so she just conceded at this point, wow, I can see that you're a prophet. I can see that God has gifted you with knowledge because prophets had supernatural knowledge from God. Little did she know that Jesus was the prophet. He was God. By admitting he was a prophet, she was also admitting the accuracy of his words about her life, his assessment. She conceded her sin. She didn't deny it. But neither was she ready to deal with it. So what did she do in verse 20? She did what what many people would do. She changed the subject from her sin. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say, you plural, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What is she saying? The Samaritans abandoned Judaism and intermarried with pagans. So their worship was this mixture of Judaism and paganism. They only accepted the Pentateuch. They set up a temple on Mount Gerizim where both Abraham and Jacob had set up altars, but it was not the place of worship that God had prescribed for his people. Jerusalem was the place of worship, the place where the temple should have been built and was built. Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, which became the epicenter of Jewish worship, For God's people, real estate became the debate. Real estate. The you in verse 20 is plural. In other words, you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place. She was bringing up a theological debate between Samaritans and Jews. And she was bringing up a debate of location to the premier Jewish prophet. Maybe to test him or to have her legitimate questions answered, or maybe to get the focus off of her lifestyle of sin. Sometimes, isn't it true that we go to great lengths to keep people at a distance to get the focus off of our guilt and sin? She was on the wrong side of this theological debate, that's for sure. She walked into the theological issue that Jesus would then use to change her thinking and to apply the gospel to her life. She saw the main issue of worship as external, not internal, not about Christ. And Jesus would change that. Jesus would change that. Jesus exposed her immorality and her idolatry. His point was profound and very relevant for us. So what point is Jesus making and how does it apply to Jerusalem church? Jesus graciously reveals that worship is about a person. Worship is about a person and mostly internal. 
Here's what Jesus said, verse 29. Woman, which was like at that time saying, ma'am, ma'am, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The you is plural, referring to the Samaritans. So talk about change. Talk about change. This is incredible for her to hear. For so many years, location was of huge significance in worship. And Jesus was now saying the hour is coming when external locations would be irrelevant. Wouldn't even matter anymore. An hour was coming when worship would be overhauled. Jesus was saying that worship was changing because of him. He was saying that location and rites and ceremonies and symbols, all external realities and types of Old Testament worship were becoming obsolete and fulfilled in him, the person, the son of God. He is the mountain. He is the temple. He is the tabernacle. He is the place of worship. Jesus continues, verse 21, you, which is plural again, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Samaritans did not really know God. They didn't know God. They rejected most of his divine scripture, most of his revelation. They had bad theology, but the Jews knew God. They believed all his revelation and salvation is from the Jews in the sense that the Messiah would come from Israel. And so he did. His name was Jesus. Jesus continued, verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, the genuine worshipers, the authentic worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus was leading this woman to drink from the fountain of living water. Worship is connecting with drinking from the fountain of living water. When you worship, you drink. When you drink, you worship. In verse 23, Jesus defined what true or genuine or authentic worship really is. I checked this out online. A painting of Rembrandt could sell for $43 million. That's a lot of money. $43 million. But a reproduction, another painter painting that same painting, a reproduction could sell for somewhere a little less than $200. All right? The value is in... The authenticity. The value is in the authenticity. The authentic or true worshipers are not those who travel to Mount Gerizim, are not those who travel to Jerusalem or travel to Penryn. The genuine worshipers are those who worship the Father in spirit and truth. The type of worshipers that God seeks are not enslaved to externals, but are governed by spirit and truth. Everyone who does not worship in spirit and truth is not a true worshiper. They're a false worshiper. So what does it mean to worship God in spirit? It means you worship God inside you. 
inside you, in the immaterial part of your being. It begins with the Holy Spirit changing your spirit. And through the power of grace, your spirit now enjoys and reveres and serves and praises God. Worship is in you. What does it mean to worship God in truth? It means you worship God according to the truth of God revealed in Scripture. You worship according to the Bible, according to the real God. Truth is our context for worship. True worship is of the one true God according to the desire and design of that one true God. And God does still give us some externals, but comparatively speaking, just a few. Just a few. And they're very different than what was outlined in the Old Testament forms. Matthew Henry explains it like this. It would seem to us worshiping in spirit and truth can only mean, A, rendering such homage to God that the entire heart enters into the act, and B, doing this in full harmony with the truth of God as revealed in his word. He continues, such worship, therefore, will not only be spiritual instead of physical, inward instead of outward, but it will also be directed to the true God as set forth in Scripture and as displayed in the work of redemption. End of quote. Uh, John Piper is helpful on this. Quote, to worship God in spirit means to be born of the spirit and therefore to be a living spirit before the new birth All we do is go to church and go to the synagogue or go to the mosque or the temple and act in the flesh. Whether we call ourselves Christians or Jews or Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists, we have no living spirit. We are dead and we don't know God. End of quote. An act of the flesh alone is not worship. Because you came in these doors and went through the motions today does not mean you have worshiped today. Your flesh may be here, but is your spirit here? Is your heart here? Are you personally engaged An act of the flesh alone is not worship. It's dead ritual. In order to truly worship, you must be born again. Your inner person must worship. God must make you spiritually alive to be a true worshiper. Only living spirits worship God rightly. Dead ones can't. How is God seeking these true worshipers? This is amazing grace. By grace, through his son Jesus. He pursues and seeks out worshipers by his grace. Jesus is the only way that God makes true worshipers. Then in verse 24, Jesus made a defining theological statement about God. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. One of the catechism questions that I asked my kids, I won't put them on the spot. I guess they left. Are they even in here? All right, one of them is maybe. I asked them, what is God? You guys know? What is God? Drawing a blank. God is a 
spirit and does not have a body. That's what they know, but are not saying right now. God is a spirit and does not have a body. God is spirit. That's a big theological statement about God. God is not made. God is not material. God does not have a physical body. God is invisible. God is therefore unknowable until he chooses to reveal himself to us in some way. And he has. His only son Jesus and his holy word. He has revealed himself. He has spoken. He is knowable through Christ. John again used the Greek word day in verse 24, meaning it is absolutely necessary that we worship in spirit and truth. I've heard it said, if we worship only in spirit, we'll blow up. If we worship only in truth, we'll dry up. But if we worship in spirit and truth, we'll grow up. Worship was always about the heart. But the types and symbols and locations were becoming obsolete. They were becoming fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The spirit of man was becoming the location of worship. And the cathedral of the heart is trimmed and adorned with beautiful truth. Our hearts make the grand cathedral. What does this mean for Jerusalem church? Friends, worship is in your heart. It's in you. This doesn't work unless you show up with the spirit of worship in you being changed. Worship doesn't work unless we are a congregation filled with genuinely converted people. uh, Genuine people who love Jesus Christ from the heart And when you come in those doors, the spirit of Jesus is here because the spirit of Jesus is in you and he is in us and God is with us when we worship. That can't happen if we're just going through the motions. Worship can't happen here if if we think that this is just some ritual that we have to motor through as part of our tradition of our lives on Sunday mornings. It has to be much deeper than that in our soul that we treasure and cherish and delight in the truth of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. You know, I think if we had 6,000 people here this morning and, um, and none of them, you know, were, were actually worshiping, It just really wouldn't matter that much. But if we only had three that had passionate zeal for Jesus Christ, he would be so pleased. And so it has nothing to do with numbers. It has nothing to do with externals. It has everything to do with our passion for Jesus Christ. The most important thing, Jerusalem Church, is your heart and the truth. Your heart and the truth of God's word, not form, not rituals, not symbols. When unbiblical externals of worship are elevated above the spirit and truth of worship, true worship dies. Now let me ask you a tough question. Are you most concerned about external details of worship or 
your own heart and the truth of worship? Are externals most important to you or is the essence of worship, spirit and truth most important to you? Now, there are obviously externals that God has prescribed for, in this example, corporate worship in particular. But they're really simple. Worship is not without any form. And so this past uh, Tuesday, the, when the uh, worship t- team, excuse me, did a little exercise on a whiteboard. If we can pull that, that picture up on a whiteboard. And what we did was we listed on the left-hand side what we believed were biblical issues of worship that God prescribes for corporate worship, kind of the externals that, that the Bible talks about. And then on the right side, we, we listed issues that are, are not biblical. There are things that are just... Um, flexible issues that are not central to worship, things that um, we can change. So on the left side, you'll see a a bunch of things, confession of sin, prayer, scripture reading, preaching, or as we put it, exposition and application of the word of God is what is meant there. The Lord's Supper, baptism, music slash singing, the benediction, or you could say a, a divine blessing upon the people, which we'll see benedictions throughout Scripture, and tithing, giving unto the, the expansion of the gospel in the world and, and the needs of the local church. Now, you also see that praise and thanksgiving, creeds and weddings and funerals were also mentioned, but I put those in a separate category. All worship should be done with the spirit of praise and thanksgiving, I think, so that kind of categorizes it all. And um, creeds are really a a wise way to affirm together the truth of God's word and theology about God. And then weddings and funerals are obviously unique worship opportunities, different from the Lord's Day or, or every Sunday. So these left issues are really carrying out the truth of worship, what we believe God outlines in Scripture for us to do. Then on the right side of the board, we see all kinds of things. And this is only an abbreviated list. But these are the flexible things, the things that we have freedom to change and adjust, elements not commanded in Scripture. So these were on our list. The acolyte, the pulpit placement, robes, candles, organ versus guitar versus piano versus drums versus flute versus whatever, harps. Um, greeters and ushers, suits versus casual, and as you know, I like to mix that one up. Last week, I had my shirt untucked. How many of you saw that and noticed? How many of you were bothered by that? Honey, you were bothered by that. All right. All right. How many prefer suits? Oh, all right. Joe Gruber. All right, man. In the back. All right. I love suits, but I like to mix it up. Uh, PowerPoint versus hymnal versus, um, and then you have choruses versus psalms versus hymns. And a little note on that, I would actually adjust that one because, um, and I might have been the one to put it up there, I don't know. Um, Paul does talk about uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So I'd probably erase that one. Uh, So just block that from your memory. Uh, Order of worship, frequency, and style of the Lord's Supper, whether we show videos or not, whether our service has a a quiet meditative spirit or a rejoicing spirit, which I think it should be be kind of both, but 
neither here nor there, I guess, prelude and postlude, announcements, greeting time, and on and on and on of things that you could just change that really have nothing to do with biblical worship. Every one of these right-side issues is flexible, a matter of preference, and not essential to corporate worship, things that we must hold very loosely. Right-side issues should be used strategically to be focused and faithful and fruitful in God's mission. The left-side issues are really kind of die-on-those-hill issues. They're important. Uh, And the right-side issues are to be handled with much grace and love and flexibility. So as far as regular worship services are concerned, our focus and zeal should be the posture of our hearts as we magnify and enjoy God through left-side issues. And we must be wise with right-side issues to make sure we are using them most effectively for the health and growth of the church. When a church begins to hold the right-side issues too tightly, it loses the true and genuine heart of worship and becomes legalistic and rigid where God isn't, thus becoming unbiblical and, I would argue, unfaithful to the gospel and headed towards severe decline or even death. I believe that one of the biggest reasons that so many churches in America are closing up shop, closing their doors because they have to each year, is that they elevate right-side issues above the gospel, And they become so rigid that they lose touch with what is most important, which is the heart of worship and delighting in the gospel. And that can take on all different types of forms depending on the context in which God plants your church. And so it's, it's a sad reality that so many churches close their door, but it's also sad to see the legalism and rigidity in the church, not on biblical issues, but on unbiblical issues. God should close those churches down. Because if they're not putting the gospel at the top and letting that shine, what are they shining but man-made inventions? So we should be rigid on spirit and truth issues. Spirit and truth issues we don't waver on. But all the others were flexible, were intentional, and were prudent. How many churches fight over right-side issues? How many churches fail because they just couldn't get by working through some of the right-side issues? Tons. And do you know how rigidity impacts those churches? It sucks attention and energy away from the most important thing, the gospel and its impact in people's lives. It drains a church of vibrant worship. If God is seeking true worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, then we want to focus on spirit and truth instead of externals so people can experience God in our midst. Jerusalem, I believe that God is calling our church, maybe from some spiritual, for some practical reasons, to let some things go. To let some things go in order, please listen to my words, I'm choosing them carefully, in order to better reach people for the gospel. Because the gospel is most important at our church. 
My encouragement this morning is to grow in your enthusiasm and delight in God through left-side issues. Left-side issues. Are you delighting in God's word? Are you ready just to come and soak in it? Is Sunday school important to you so you're there just hanging on Tim's words? Are you coming opening your scripture here in the preaching of the word and saying, yes, I just love the Jesus of, of those scriptures? And are you cherishing the truths of the songs that we sing, no matter what style they're in? Do you just read the words and say, that's my Jesus, that's my God. He is a rock. He is eternal throughout the ages. Um, is your heart engaged in prayer? Um, just a humbleness before God and openness saying, God, move in my life, in my brothers and sisters, in our community. And just praying that the healing of the sick and the comforting of, of uh, tormented souls. And, and are you flexible on the right side issues? That's my encouragement. Be flexible on the right side. There's going to be all kinds of different thoughts on those right side issues in our church. And so we're going to have to make some hard decisions. But, but I think if we do that with truth and love and grace, understanding they're not left side issues. They're not central to the gospel. So we can flex in order to be better equipped to carry the gospel to lost people. So let's be flexible. Let's love so that we can grow together. Are you willing to flex and loosen so that we can grow as a church? It's a good question for us to answer. The life and worship of this Samaritan woman were changing before her eyes. Everything she once held tightly was being uprooted and changed. These, um, things wouldn't be the same for her after this. They would be drastically different and infinitely better. Infinitely better. This woman was just going through some amazing changes. Jesus is the gracious Messiah that transforms worship. In verse 25, she responds, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. The Samaritans were actually looking for a Messiah. And I think she's essentially saying two things. You know the details about my life, but when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us everything. He'll tell us all things. And secondly, when Messiah comes, he will clear up this ongoing debate about worship. And that is exactly what Jesus was doing. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now there's something really special that you need to see here that you're not going to see in the English. The word he is not in the Greek. Jesus said, I who speak to you am is that, is that ringing a bell with anybody? I who speak to you am. I am. God is the great I am. Jesus all throughout John says, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the son of God. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Now, Jesus often uh, backed away from pro proclaiming his Messiahship in public. I think he only does it a couple times in the New Testament, I think. But here in this conversation with the Samaritan woman, he said, I am the Messiah. I am God. I am the appointed, God-appointed and chosen Savior of the world. 
Now, how did Jesus transform worship? When Jesus would suffer and go to the cross and give his life as an atonement for sin and raise from the dead and return to the Father, worship would then be in him. Would be in him, in a person, not on a mountain. Worship is about Christ and about biblical truth, not about Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim or any other extra biblical form or style. The location of worship was changing to Jesus. And so by grace through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit in us makes us the sanctuary, makes us the worship center, makes us the church. The locale has now become internal. Can you see why religious ritual is meaningless without faith in Christ? Because then it's not tied to the true center of worship. And so if Christ is not part of it, it's not worship. It's just dead ritual. Through faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, worship happens in our heart. Together we are made the temple no matter where or how we worship, as long as it is done in spirit and in truth. The details of external worship given in the Old Testament were only symbols pointing to Christ. But they have all been fulfilled now in Christ. No more sacrifices, no more ornate temples or uh, tabernacles, no more incense, no more showbread or lampstands or washings, no more symbols or types because the real thing has come. Jesus is our tabernacle. Jesus is our temple. Everything else is unnecessary except what God lays out in his word. Do you remember what Jesus said earlier in the book of John, chapter 2, verse 19 and 21? He said, destroy this temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body. He was saying the hour is coming when you can forget Mount Gerizim. You can forget Jerusalem when you can generally forget external forms and locations. Look to me, I am the epicenter of genuine worship. And it gets even better. By grace, everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation becomes the new temple in Christ. Faith in Christ unites us to Christ, unites us to each other... ...as a new temple of worship. Paul wrote to the Corinthians... ...do you not know that you are God's temple... ...and that God's spirit dwells in you... ...for God's temple is holy... ...and you are that temple. Imagine hearing that. Imagine hearing... ...we're, we're the temple. Not Gerizim, not Jerusalem. We are. God is in our midst... Worship is done in our midst, in our hearts, together. The hour was coming for this Samaritan woman where she could lay the theological debate to rest, lay her lifestyle of sin at the foot of the cross and come to Jesus and worship in him to become part of the living temple of God. Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Can we just say, wow. God is building us into the dwelling place of God. When someone gets saved and becomes part of the church, the big C church, the universal church, They become part of the temple where God himself dwells by the Holy Spirit. Worship happens in that person. All of a sudden, the temple of the body, which was a pagan ritual site, becomes a vibrant worshiping site because of the Holy Spirit of grace poured into that person's life. And they join us as part of that building. The Holy Spirit in us is the key to worship. God takes up residence in us and we become the worship location, worshiping according, of course, to his design and intent. My friends, genuine worship that pleases God is in your heart according to the truth of God's word. Jesus was challenging everything in this woman's life because that's what grace does. And God is calling you through Jesus Christ to become a true, genuine, authentic worshiper. To worship him in your spirit according to his truth. The avenue to authentic worship is Jesus Christ, a person. He is the fountain of living waters that quenches the thirst of the soul. And worship is all about Jesus. There are things that God wants us to do in worship to sing joyfully, to hear and delight in his word, to pray and so forth. But all of it is dead and worthless without a spirit that delights in God himself. So may Jerusalem church be a church that truly worships God in spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have been very good to Jerusalem church. Uh, through many, many years, over 286, I believe. And God, I don't know if where we're at right now as a church is unique, but I have a feeling that it is. I have a feeling that this is a very defining time for our church. And I know what you're calling us to do. It's really clear. You're asking Jerusalem Church to focus and focus and focus some more on spirit and truth issues, that we would evaluate our own hearts, that we'd confess our sin and come to the cross, laying it down, saying, Jesus, you are my answer. I want to drink deeply of you by faith, and so help me to be a true worshiper. And God, that we would look at the scriptures and design our worship around the biblical model for worship. And it goes beyond corporate worship, God. It goes into our individual worship lives when we're in our prayer closets worshiping you. It goes into family worship, how we worship you as a family, how we train our kids to love Christ and to share the gospel with our children. So these are worship issues. Obedience is worship issues. How we serve you in the community is a worship issue. And so God, I just pray that as we think about worship, that Jesus would change our minds to see it in terms of spirit and truth. And when we hear truth, God, help us to revere the scriptures, to go deep into your word, and may your Holy Spirit communicate to us what you want worship to look like. 
And so, God, we, we want to be faithful where you have called us to be faithful, and we want to be flexible with everything else, the things that are not biblical, or the things that we have freedom to change, uh, to be strategic with, God. So just help us as a church. Keep us together by your grace. May you give us a spirit of unity and delight in Jesus Christ and a delight in worship, uh, whatever that may look like, God. You are good. You are perfect. We trust you, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.